Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Firstly, I'd like to say a big thank you to everybody who's signing up at the Patreon page. It has been overwhelming to me in this time when everybody is doing it so hard that people have found uh, some money uh, to support this show, uh, to say that they think this show is important. We've set ourselves a little target. We want to get to uh, $5,000 in Patreon subscriptions a month because that's our budget for two episodes a week. We're going to do a couple of weeks of putting up two episodes just because I have a couple in the bank and because of the topicality of our times, I don't like them to sit around for too long because sometimes something that is very top of mind when we talk about it has progressed quite a lot by the time that you get to hear it. So um, some two episodes a week, but uh, we will go back to the regular one episode a week for a while as well. If we can get to that 5,000 mark, and we are at about 3,300 at the moment. So it is very achievable. If we could make it to that 5,000 mark, that means that podcast Mike, who puts in all the hard work behind the scenes, making this podcast happen and that extra hard workload of doing an episode, extra episode a week with uh, editing and putting it all together over the internet and uh, taking the time to organize guests and all that sort of stuff. He's doing a brilliant job. And the reason that you hear this podcast so often is, uh, you know, particularly because of podcast Mike and the incredible work that he does. So it's important to me that if we are going to put more on that workload, that we pay him properly for doing that. And of course, the brilliant James Fosdyke, who does original art for all the episodes. Um, we need a bit of budget there because it costs him, obviously, you know, uh, it costs us even uh, more of his time and a little bit more money when we're doing original new guests because he's doing an original, uh, completely new portrait. Uh, or if somebody's just changed their hair, like Jared has for this episode. So we've got a new Jared image for this episode because he got rid of his bloody dreadlocks. Uh, so your money always goes to just putting it back into this show into this world uh you if you join up on the patreon page there is going to be some bonus content there i know i've been promising it for a while but we are just trying to make sure that when we do put stuff there it is stuff that will be of value to you and it will be really interesting to you and we have a couple of ideas that we are just kicking around at the moment to work out which one is the most practical and which one we think you guys as an audience might enjoy more so uh that is coming that will come in the next month or so no doubt about that but probably if we can hit that fifty, uh, that uh, fifty thousand, if we can hit that fifty thousand mark, that'd be great. I can retire from everything else and just do this podcast. But if we can hit that five thousand mark, uh, we will have the time and the resources, I think, to uh, put out two episodes a week and something really cool for the Patreon per week as well. So that's our aim. Uh, I don't want to sound like I'm begging too much because I know these are incredibly tough times for so many people, but I have been overwhelmed by the generosity. And if you want to send me a message on Patreon to say something about the podcast, there have been so many people who have uh, shared uh, episodes they loved, things they got out of those guests, or just asked me questions or, su or suggested uh, interviews for upcoming episodes of Willosophy. So that's that's another important one because as we do more episodes and as the uh, podcast goes from me just talking to people that I know in my real life to having conversations with people that I would like to know in my real life. Um, we have to broaden that search out a little bit more. So anyway, your money, your support uh, is all going uh, back into the podcast and hopefully to bring you more and more excellent shows. So today's episode is with Jared McKenna. If you, if you don't know who Jared McKenna is, then uh, go back and listen to the first two episodes. This is his third appearance on the show and it's always a pleasure to have Jared on. I, I, I think he's a wonderful mind, a, a big old beating heart and he is willing to put it on the line for those who are less fortunate than he is. Uh, the audio quality in this is not at the usual level. 
that I would like the audio quality to be for the episodes. We always like to do them so it sounds like we're in the same room even though we aren't in the same room. This one does not sound like that. You can clearly tell that it's been recorded over the internet, but I think uh, Podcast Mike, yet again, uh, has worked pretty tirelessly to make sure that uh, it sounds as good as it possibly can sound, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Please stick around right till the end. That's what I would say. Uh, Jared, at the end, reads me a, a story, a children's story that he wrote. And uh, in fact, he wanted me to mention if there is anybody who was listening to this who was inspired by Jared's words, who loves that story, and you're a publisher or an illustrator, and you would like to help Jared make it an actual thing, you can definitely get in contact with him. Or if you um, can't get in contact with him, get in contact with me uh, through the Patreon page, and I will pass the message on uh, to Jared. But you can find Jared on all the socials, so you can probably contact him directly if you have some inspiration and you want to talk to him about that. But it's beautiful. Uh, It is well and worth sticking around for, and I really enjoyed this entire conversation with Jared. Now, one of the things that Jared's talked about recently, in fact, I think last time he was on the show, we were talking about him just being back from Manus, where he was over there supporting those who are trying to seek asylum in Australia. And another group that does an amazing job uh, for those uh, asylum seekers is the ASRC. That's the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Now, Uh, If you don't know about the ASRC, a lot of people will. Uh, They do an absolutely amazing job. You can follow them on Twitter at ASRC1. Now, this weekend, well, this weekend, if you're listening to this when it comes out, but uh, the ASRC, uh, they have a a telethon, basically. That's how it works. And uh, they get a whole bunch of, uh, you know, celebrities, comedians, musicians, all those sort of people to answer the phones or maybe to donate an item that you can bid on in an auction. I have donated an item that you can bid on in an auction. So, for the very first time, I will be auctioning off the opportunity to appear on this show. I thought this was a brilliant cause for it. So, it's an auction item up there, and you can bid on that auction item to either appear on the show yourself, if you're somebody who's always wanted to be on this show, I will put it out, And I will interview you in philosophy style uh, and uh, I will put it out on the feed so it could be for yourself. If you want to donate some money to support asylum seekers in the resource center and you want to be on the podcast, maybe it's something that you want to do. But I also think it might be the sort of thing that somebody wants to do in the name of somebody else. Maybe your next door neighbor or your dad or your mum or your sister or your brother or your best friend is somebody who has an incredible story to tell and you think it should be the sort of story that could be told on this podcast and you want to make a generous donation to the ASRC to make that happen, go to the ASRC donation page, uh, well, auction page, and you can bid on the opportunity to be a guest or nominate a guest for an episode of Willosophy. It's a bit of an experiment. I don't know how it will go, but I thought if there was ever a time and a cause for me to do this experiment, then uh, this was probably the one. So get behind it. And uh, even if you don't want to bid on that, then uh, I would uh, highly encourage you to go to the auction page, look at some of the amazing things that are already up there on the auction page, or just give a donation to the ASRC uh, during their telethon, which is on the 20th, and uh, that is World uh, Refugee Day, I believe. So uh, that is the day that they have their telethon, and please give generously. 
All right, uh, there you go. I think that's all I need to talk about. Sorry, it's been nearly eight minutes. This is a big old-fashioned long introduction today. I'm sorry about that. But I really enjoyed catching up with Jared McKenna. Don't worry about the uh, quality of the audio because the quality of the content is top-notch. Thank you so much for listening. I've got an amazing episode coming out next Wednesday with Kurt Fernley. Kurt Fernley who was on episode 11, so very early when I started doing this show, the brilliant and wonderful Kurt Fernley. I've already got that one in the can. We recorded that the other day, and it was an absolute corker of an episode. So that'll be out on Wednesday. And then uh, Alice Fraser and Nellie Thomas, I've already organized to do episodes with them. And I think Osha might be coming back soon. But if you have suggestions for new guests, old guests, any of that sort of stuff, you can hit me up on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash willosophy. Enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, Here's what I'm doing during the quarantine period. Well, here's what I have been doing during the quarantine period is I've been reimagining what this podcast is because I I only really ever had one rule about these conversations and that one rule was that I would be in the same room with the person that I was speaking to. I'd like to be able to, you know, look somebody in the eye. I'd I'd like to be able to, you know, consensually touch somebody in whatever fashion they feel comfortable with when I do the podcast. And because this podcast is something that I tend to do with my friends or people who've even become friends, you know, through this podcast with me, um, often it does involve a hug or a handshake or a kiss or something to start the podcast. So it's been very weird to check in with previous guests over the power of the World Wide Web, the information superhighway, the internet, as I believe the kids are calling it these days, and uh, catch up and see how people are doing in these, you know, completely unusual times. Now, uh, this is a third time guest back for his third appearance. And this is a man who definitely uh, normally starts every podcast and every interaction with a massive hug, a proper hug, a hug that actually means something, not a not a precursory hug, an actual hug. I'm, I'm imagining he's a man who's never done a precursory or a flippant hug in his entire life. This is how the podcast starts. Who are you? Uh, I, I'm still Jared McKenna, Will. <laughs> Hello, still Jared McKenna. Uh, it is nice to speak to you again, sir. And you are a tactile person, you know, generally. How, how have you done, gone with uh, the restrictions placed on us during these quarantine times. Well, um, I have a brand new baby who, as of yesterday, I think is eleven weeks old. So I'm I'm getting all the cuddles I need. I know for so many people, I've got so many uh, friends, um, particularly those um, uh, in the southern part of Africa, who this has been immensely difficult for. So I'm really sensitive to that. But will I'm in the most incredible season personally and it's been really lovely so um little noah otis coming into the world has meant it's been non-stop hugs and nappies and puke and um lots of other good things but he's just he's reached the start stage now where he's smiling so um you can do stuff and you get this response and he giggles so um that's been amazing yeah well i mean you've probably been getting more laughs and giggles than i have during this time uh <laughs> 
I've been getting none of that. It is intoxicating, Jared. You're absolutely right. It's got a way out of my life. Now, Noah is a good name for these times. It feels like <laughs> it feels like Noah is a person who can grow up in uh, unusual times. How are you, um, you know, obviously having a new child, bringing it into the world. You're a person who already thinks deeply about, you know, the state of the world and where we are as a humanity. But obviously, you know, this is proper stakes in the game a little baby you've, you've got to look at this little baby in the context of where the world is right now and have a whole bunch of thoughts so can we just start with some of those thoughts where's your head at how are you feeling about the world right now and and let's see where that takes us yeah i i got a um text from our mate tom ballard um when he saw little noah had come along that said uh, so I'm expecting um, this child will uh, lead humanity out of the flood of this moment. <laughs> I was like, well, no pressure. Or, or at the very least, the floods that are coming will put out the bushfires that are also coming. <laughs> Do you remember the bushfires, Will? Oh, my goodness. Remember the bush? That, mean, that seems like so long ago for those of us on the other side of the country or other parts of the world. It's just been a, a crazy year. Um, I saw Cornel West, who's been incredibly kind to me um, on TV the other day, and he was saying, um, thank God that people are out on the streets. Um, can you imagine if this kind of lynching happened at the moment and uh, people weren't holding signs, if people weren't organising protests, if, if people weren't um, angry, if instead there was apathy or um, indifference um, or uh, just more compliance with what has been going on. I'm aware, Will, that a lot of people describe this moment and talk about, oh, it's really dark times. But um, I, I've i stopped talking like that and I'm making it a discipline that, no, this, these are times where the light is actually breaking in. Um, there's times where we're realising that it has been dark. It's been dark for so long, for so many. And um, we know that it can't continue the way that it has. Um, I just saw this morning uh, as I was waking up, um, John Boyega, who played Finn, in Star Wars, um, uh, talking about that uh, we can't go back to no normal. This is a time to reimagine everything. And, you know, there's times when we realise that our whole life has been serving a system that enslaved us and others, and then on Jakku we have an experience that makes us wake up and realise, oh, I'm playing for the wrong team, I'm serving the wrong side. And I think this is an incredible opportunity for so many of us to go stop being a stormtrooper actually wake up and join the resistance. And I've been so encouraged. I saw one of the morning shows in Australia, um, and remember where morning show conversations on white supremacy were like just a, a, a few minutes ago, it seems like. And they had a, a post on YouTube that said, not being racist is not enough. We need to be anti-racist. And Will, I was like, I'm so uncomfortable that morning TV in Australia sounds like me. Like that's, that's literally something I would say. And I was like, what, what moment have I woken up in? It's like, we've been in a certain parallel universe of, of horror and um, we got to the bottom of the page, cho chosen a different adventure and people are, are now going, okay, we, we want to be a part of a different story. So I think there's incredible potential at this moment because we all have sensed with like existential dread that things are wrong, that um, this isn't right, that it only works for a few and we need to do something else. And we're waking up and uh, starting to participate in that. And I'm so pleased at the surprising people who are coming to the party. Now, so 
I, I love this, of course, because you know that I think that we've been living wrong for a very long time also. And I think that currently what we've been going through has only reinforced the dramatic inequalities that are in our society. But also I'm hoping, given people some compassion for how quickly your life can go wrong through no fault of your own. And maybe that's some compassion that we might take into conversations that we have around people who are already in terrible circumstances through no fault of their own, or even through fault of their own. Let's have kindness and compassion for those people that's right. who fucked, fucked up through fault that's of right. their own. That's right. Just those of us who just screwed up ourselves. We don't need any other help. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes we do it to ourselves and that's what it really hurts to, to quote Radiohead. But uh, what I want to say to you is that you look at that with such hope. You know, I, I'm not going to talk about it as the darkness. I'm going to talk about it as the light coming through. I, I Most of me is like that. But you know, there's another part of me that just thinks, yeah, but we'll just go back to normal. There's such a rush for us to go back to how things were before this, that all this great compassion and hope and light that we're experiencing right now is going to get blacked out again by the time that we go back to what we what we call normal what what are your hopes for how much of what we've learned right now we will carry forward and how much of it will you know be like you said you know morning tv right now is posting youtube videos about being anti-racist but it's not going to be too many weeks before Pauline Hanson or Mark Latham are on one of their talking head, um, you know, segments they have, you know, to get in the ratings in the morning and saying something particularly racist. So do, do you have hope? Where's your, you know, thought process around how much of this we carry forward? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm, um, an optimist, uh, um, but I have a belief in resurrection, right? Like I'm one of those weirdos. So I'm not naive about the reality of crucifixion and what we're living through. Um, Will Mark Latham and Pauline Hanson and um, uh, other neo-fascists get more gigs on um, TV? Sure. But I really do think this moment is different and people's responses will be different as well. Like we're, we're living in a moment where um, uh, statues, people walk by are now being torn down. And I think that's happening in people's hearts as well, Will. I think um, there's there's been monuments uh, erected to um, uh, oppressive, awful, gross things that we've just al allowed to um, live in us. And people are having those t torn down internally and it's expressing itself on the streets. I, I think of, you know, people like Angela Davis, who um, you know, has been this um, icon, this... Um, you know, incredible example of um, resistance. And she's talking about that she's never seen anything like this moment before in history. Noam Chomsky is saying the, the same thing. Uh, yesterday um, at the Black Lives Matter rally in Perth, I was with Uncle Ben Taylor. Uncle Ben, um, uh, he, he was around here over a week ago and he was talking about that he's been protesting for over 70 years now. His first protest, he was 12 years old. Um, as a Noongar elder, he's saying, never seen anything like this. In Perth, uh, what, March 2003 with the anti-Iraq um, uh, war protests, that was kind of like my um, f first year or so of like organising. And um, uh, just into my 20s, seeing all this stuff happen, um, 40,000 people out in the streets of Perth, in Perth. And I was like, wow, this, this is it. Like, we're not going back. Um, but we did. We, we had Labor leaders that said, oh, we've joined the war now. We just need to fall in. And instead of um, maintaining the movement on the streets um, or going to jail um, or taking the next step, 
um, we all went back to the way things were. Yesterday, we saw conservative estimates like 16,000 people on the streets of Perth during the pandemic, um, during lockdown for Black Lives Matter, where like, you know, a, a predominantly white crowd who were going, things have to change. I mean, those of us have been going to deaths and custody rallies for 20 years. There were people that have never been to any rally before. I really do think that this this moment um, isn't more of the same, that there is this, this perfect storm of um, both uh, the the pandemic, um, what's happening in the US in particular, which so many people are looking at. But I mean, we could talk about what's happening in the Philippines or what's happening in Brazil or what's happening in Turkey. Like the, these are uh, worldwide like shifts towards fascism um, that uh, like, and I, I don't mean that in the way that, you know, <laughs> some of us use the term fascism. It's like, I've got a parking ticket, the fascist. Like, no, I mean, I mean like actual fascism, like, um, uh, and people are aware and we've got this time in history where we can actually communicate and people are saying enough. Um, I, I can't take it anymore. I'm not going to take it anymore. I have work to do. Look at the New York times, best selling uh, books, the top 10, there's only one of them that hasn't got to do with anti-racism. This, this is a moment will like there, there is something that is happening in our, Choice is not like, um, will we be involved, but how will we be involved? Like, will we be involved um, by being late to the party? Um, or are, are we actually like um, uh, buying drinks, putting up decorations um, and, and choosing the playlist? Because there is a party happening. How do you uh, make sure that people don't just buy the books and download the books? People actually read the books because I, I speak from a personal experience like all those top 10 books on the uh, you know new york times bestsellers list all 10 of them sit on my shelf or in my um, you know in my audio audible audio books and i've probably read three of the 10 so far how do and so i'm just going to say if that's me i'm going to translate to that to some other people as well there's some people buying those books and then putting them on the shelves and never reading those books and they're, they're putting it next to their copy of stephen hawking's brief history of the universe as something that they knew they should have bought but something that they didn't actually read how do we as you as somebody who works you know has worked like on in the protest movement in the organization movement how do you organize and transfer that emotion that's out there on the street that passion that we have right now so that it doesn't go away again yeah i think um so much of how capitalism works is it helps um or not just helps it it forms us in such a way that we think of ourselves merely as individuals um and so even in terms of books i'd encourage people uh don't read a book by yourself R read a book in community so uh, we have a number of like um a book uh, uh study groups um so oh, this you know all this um blew up in terms of um george floyd um four weeks into uh, anti-racism and discipleship training that dr drew hart who did his uh phd the third generation um uh, african-american preacher in um the the us who did his phd work on white supremacy and the church and we're doing um, this uh, study of his book, The Trouble I've Seen, and all this stuff blows up. And then we have all these people flood in. And the thing that's been most transformational for people is not reading alone. Um, create a book, you know, we're on Zoom now, but um, whether it's WhatsApp and uh, read something with mates. So 
you know, we're going to read uh, one chapter a week or one chapter a fortnight, and then we're going to catch up for half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half, and talk through, like, we literally go through what were our favourite quotes. We've got another um, uh, in Indigenous um, theology uh, book study that happens on a Sunday afternoon with people from all around the world, people like zooming in from, from Greece, uh, from Italy, from Germany, from Zambia, uh, uh, from Kenya, from South Africa, and um, you're hearing people kind of bring their context to the conversation around a particular text, um, and that process in itself, the process of listening to others, not merely being listened to, is transformational. I think, Will, that's why so many people download your podcast over and over again. I mean, like podcasts with the same people, is that there's something in the process of listening and really being listened to that makes us reconsider our own lives, reconsider our own moment, um, the decisions we were going to make. It's like a circuit breaker that goes something other than the patterns I've fallen into are possible and maybe I can try something new. So um, in, in terms of the practicalities of um, those uh, 10 books that people might have downloaded, don't do it by yourself. Building community or as Martin Luther King would say, um, the beloved community is always a form of resistance to the economics that leave us alone and lonely. So I think that that idea of community is one that's been at the forefront in what we've been going through because it is genuinely, well, it's certainly been in the forefront of my thoughts. And firstly, that just that neighbourhood community that initially popped up when the pandemic hit, which was the idea that you couldn't really see anybody, so neighbours were looking after each other in the street. There was the worst of us as well, and we all saw the worst of us, don't worry, but there was also immediately the best of us. And I guess, you know, on a, a on a very different way, that's what we've also seen out of the worst of humanity with what happened to George, George Floyd, but also some of the best of humanity, which has been sprung out of it and inspired from it. And you see it all at once. But the community aspect of it, people forming groups, whether they be neighborhoods, and I've just moved back to the country. So it's like two and a half months of me living in the country. And I was talking to somebody about it yesterday. And I said, I, I had forgotten how much I missed the community. And, you know, in the city, of course you have communities. You have work communities and sport communities and social communities and all these sort of things. Of course they are all there also. But there is something about the general community of country life, you know, where I'm living, going to the local shop in the local town, whether it's also your post office and they, you know, hand over your mail and they have a chat to you about what's going on in your life and you pop into a shop and they'll get you on FaceTime because their friends choosing new glasses and they want an extra opinion on the new glasses. And you're like, this feels to me how we're meant to be living our lives. But that extra connection when we start to think, oh, when I go and buy at this local shop instead of, you know, ordering this online or whether where I go and have this meal at this local restaurant who's doing takeaway at the moment to try to keep their business going – I'm supporting my local community. I'm supporting the people who work here, the people that I'll run into, you know, the people that you you are much more connected with the idea of it being a community, which, as you say, the idea of economic rationalism, of capitalism, of neoliberalism takes it away from that. They're going, you shouldn't be buying from this idiot down the road whose you know, baked beans are costing $2 more than the ones you can buy online if you get a punnet of them, you know, in from overseas. So... Um, 
it, I think that that idea of connection of community is really important. And it had never occurred to me what you said about reading those books in conjunction with other people. It makes complete sense. It seems so simple but so powerful. Well, I mean, um, the experience for uh, so many white people to actually read and listen um, to the same text uh, with people who um, can't so easily um, uh go along with the myth of white supremacy because of the natural reality of melanin in their skin, that in itself um, changes the way that you see and the way that you hear. Um, Will, particularly at the moment, I had a friend who's, um, you know, very talented who wanted to get involved in activism and working with um, the Noongar community here in Perth. And I won't say their name, I don't have permission to tell this story uh, from them, but they were like, uh, look, um, I, I know you know these elders well, uh, maybe you can work out a time, maybe we could meet in a coffee shop, um, I'll bring an agenda, um, here's the top things we'll, we'll do, and uh, maybe we'll do, I don't know, uh, 1.30 to 2 in between um, these things I got on on the Tuesday, uh, does that work for you? And I was like, nah, you, you can't you can't work like that. Like that, that's not going to work with these elders. Here's what we're doing. Sunday afternoon, come around for a barbecue, um, uh, bring some kangaroo sausages, um, uh, bring a salad um, and uh, bring a dessert. Uh, we'll work out um, drinks and all the rest. Don't bring any paper and pen. Um, don't bring up anything to do with organizing whatsoever. Just come and listen to these elders, get to know them as if you don't have an agenda because your agenda is relationship. It is community. And they're like, yeah, but we've got this time frame. Like this event is two weeks off. Um, I, I've never pulled something off with this amount of time. And I'm like, you need to realize this is a cross-cultural moment and um, you're going to actually do damage if you come in um, and, and use these elders as if they were parts of a larger plan. You've got, to build. And so they came and uh, they did that. And initially you saw this friend of mine was very uncomfortable and then just relaxed into hearing stories. And um, uh, then it actually it was actually Uncle Ben Taylor. Oh. Uncle Ben um, eventually uh, turned to my friend and said, so righto, what are we going to do about uh, uh, this thing coming up? But it only happened after hours of being at a barbecue together and just sharing with one another and um, questions about um, kids and family and connections and all the rest. And that's such an important way of working that um, people go, oh yes, it's very important to learn when you're with Aboriginal people. Um, no, uh, what Aboriginal people in terms of those with connection with traditional culture can teach us is the way that we've been formed where we treat one another as if we're um, pawns in some larger game, as if, um, our lives are only important to others if they could be used for something. This mm -hmm, utilitarian mm -hmm. way of like making friends and contacts and quote unquote networking, it's gross. It hurts the movement. It's actually something that um, uh, needs to fade away into the background. And we've got to learn. I mean, you know, Will, I'm going to always be banging the same drum, but I think we really need to learn to love one another, like actually love, like, um, so if somebody wasn't going to be of any use to the movement, they're still part of the movement and we're taking them along because the kind of movement we want doesn't leave anybody behind. I really think that's the kind of organizing we need to be doing at this moment. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you because it's going to be hard to love some of the people that we have to take along anyway. Like, because <laughs> it feels to me that we have 
you know, two choices right now. The world seems, and look, you know, I obviously speak through the prism of the, particularly the Western world and Australia and America, because they're the two countries that I've spent the most time in in my life, and they're the two most culturally um, important, you know, countries in, you know, how my life has been formed and my story has been formed. And I look at the fractured media and I look at the fractured nature of our politics, and it seems like there's never been a greater divide between, you know, two sides and. Even if you believe that you're on the side of the right, which you know most people do, and I mean, yeah, right, small, small, small R right, not uh, big R right, and or maybe the other way around. I'm not even really sure, but uh, that that it's still got to be for everyone. If we're going to fix the planet and the environment, it's got to be for everyone, even the people who still want to keep destroying it. And it's the same, you know, with our humanity that. You know, um, that it's our enemy. We have to remember that we're going to have to take not only the disinterested, but also the people who disagree with us completely along on this journey if we're going to make this journey. Oh, oh Jared, I'm, I'm sounding more and more like one of your people. And... Uh, <laughs> Should I do an ultra call? Is that, is that what... <laughs> Tell me um, about the protests themselves, because you're somebody who has had a you know long experience of process uh, protest, but you obviously have you know a, a little baby at the moment as well, and we're in the middle of a you know global pandemic that has no vaccine at the moment. Was there nervousness around you know you contributing and taking part in the protests, or were you just like this is this is who I am and this is what I do? It, it was nearly. Um... Uh, like a, a stage photo of how, how to be in this moment during the pandemic. Like so many people had masks, had gloves, were doing the, the distancing. I'm not sure if you've seen any of the aerial photos of um, what happened at Perth, but in Langley Park, people spread out um, in such a way that it looks like a large scale art installation like it's incredible how people are distancing and yet doing this work together. I, I had the incredible privilege that um, my 10 year old and my 12 year old uh, weren't dragged to a protest for the first time, but they chose um, was part of that choosing that they could get out of school and uh, come with dad uh, into the city. Uh, sure. That, that's, that's definitely part of the motivation. I'm not naive about that, but um, uh, by any means necessary as Malcolm X would say, um, uh, but watching them in that space in this moment and realise that people who s sit around um, our dinner table, uh, who, who come over for cups of coffee and them realising that, oh, are they famous? And I was like, well, famous, like, and uh, that famous thing, um, it bothers me, uh, particularly for the kids. Like um, the goal is I want to be famous. And it's like, no, when your friends say that, work out something you want to be famous for. That's a bad goal. Uh, fame is a side effect of doing something um, that hopefully other people enjoy. It speaks to them. It, it, it brings life to a larger community. Um, but then realizing that these people who have sat around the table, their voices are being heard by others in such ways that um, are critical to this moment. So um, the, the, there's something about what happened to, to George Floyd that meant that people can now hear the names of like Mr. Dungy, um, who in, in 2015 was killed in December. Um, his last words, the same as those of like um, George Floyd, I can't breathe only right here in Australia or Miss Do or Miss Clark, um, uh, much like Brown Taylor, who was um, shot in her own bed 
um, as police came in. Here's a woman up in Geraldton surrounded by seven male police officers, all of whom have got both pepper spray and tasers on their belt, all of whom could have tackled her to the ground. Um, uh, she has like uh, mental um, illness and yet they chose to take out their gun and shoot her. Suddenly her story is being heard. There is something about this moment where stories that previously haven't been heard, whether it's about Miss Do or Mr. Ward, um, that people were now going, oh my goodness, this is happening at home. And I just don't think that can be underestimated. Well, I, I just think this is, this is something we haven't seen before. Why do we, I mean, all you have to do is, uh, you know, visit a prison in Western Australia, be roped into visiting a prison in Western Australia by one of your mates <laughs> to understand <laughs> Uh, the incredible uh, disparity between the uh, percentage of our Indigenous population versus the percentage of that population who are in our prisons. And I, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day. I said, there's only two ways you can ever look at this when you look at those sort of statistics, which is one, that you believe that they deserve to be there, which is that you believe a particular race is inherently criminal. Like, I mean, you know, so that could be a belief system. Even if people won't say that out loud, they believe that to be true. Some people do say that out loud. Then there's the next level of that, which is that you just don't want to have to think about the fact that if they are, that the institutions must be the problem. The institution of the prisons themselves, the institution of the police force, but the overall institution and society we've created that it is not compatible to you know uh them abiding by this set of arbitrary laws that we've decided are the laws versus the laws that they were you know living by originally so if you don't believe the first one and i think most people if you ask them in that way if you said to them do you believe that this race of people is inherently criminal or inherently bad i think most people would say, no, of course I don't believe that. And you say, well, why is it uh, the 3% of the population and 27% of the prison population or whatever the statistic is? Then you've got to start thinking, well, there's a problem with the system itself because that's the next logical thought step. But that's the one we always stop on, I think. I think we stop before we get to that and we go, well, I see these two things and they don't make sense to each other. The only thing that can really actually be true is there is a problem with the systems themselves. Yeah, totally. And um, just to say, Will, I'm super appreciative that um, when you're in town and want to hang out, that you're willing to come to prison with me. Um, I, I think your initial response was, what are, what, what are we protesting? I was like, no, no, we're just going to visit. It's not... <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, you, you, like you actually see it, like you would have... Um, when we walked into Acacia Prison together and um, looked around, you, you see who's there. And um, other than the football, there are a few experiences, or for those of us who are in faith communities, um, uh, maybe uh, church, there are a few places where you see so many Aboriginal people. Um, and that is really confronting that it's a reality of, you know, the prison industrial complex. How does it why does it express itself this way? One of the things that was fascinating for me in terms of um, activism yesterday was the first time I've been um, at an action and had speakers, repeatedly speakers, um, bring like an anti-drug message. Um, now, a particular drug, meth, <laughs> they weren't going, oh, like, but, um, as, as one of the elders put it yesterday, 
um, uh, there are white people uh, making money of black people buying this stuff. It's death. Stop it. Don't let, let your friends take meth. And, um, but the reality is it's not just white people making that money. Like um, the, the reality of how uh, colonialism expresses itself and how it's not just uh, externalized into systems, but how it's internalized into subtle psychologies that say that we're less than others, subtle psychologies um, uh, which say that uh, worth is based around um, this set of cultural assumptions, not another set. Um, uh, th those things are incredibly difficult and we often find people on the right who want to talk about morality and uh, uh, change and um, uh, if I could do it in this system you can too um, and those of us um, who find ourselves on the opposite side often talking about systemic change and the, the reality of institutionalized uh, uh, violence and in injustice and oppression we got to be careful that we don't also go, yes, but there, there is a place for personal transformation. And that this actually, part of the problem is that we separate the personal from the political, as any good second wave feminist will tell us, that actually um, these things um, are, are deeply combined. And it's, it's back to as statues are being torn down in our streets, let's make sure they're being torn down in our hearts as well. And as we're tearing down statues in our hearts, let's make sure we're actually being involved. Well, I wouldn't want to encourage criminal behaviour because I could have charges pressed against me, so I'm not going to tell anybody to tear down statues in the streets. But there are just some things that need to fall in this moment that, that must fall. And um, the, the personal work around that reality is incredibly important, but not when it's played off and politicized against systemic change. Um, so we need a, a both and, not an either or, um, not the kind of moralizing that places some above others, um, but the kind of deep empathy where um, uh, by mercy we're moved into the, well, it's like on our podcast when we had you on, you, you chose uh, um, Matthew seven twelve. do unto others as you'd have them do, do unto you. How do we empathetically and imaginatively enter into the lives of others in such ways that instead of moralizing our reality of base, basis in the movement actually becomes a kind of mercy where we get it. And that's why we see that we have to change these structures. So people um, don't have to be uh, incredible, inspiring examples. We can just be our flawed, broken selves stumbling forward together. It's very interesting to me that it took a, a moment in America to make Australia really, you know, confront yeah, the similar, similar but different, but similar. But glad, different. glad we don't have slavery here, Will. Well, you know what? I will. I and I'm not here to defend Scott Morrison in any way. Anyone, anyone who's seen my shows knows that's the case. Here's what I will say. If you're Prime Minister of the country, you've got to know the history of the country, and it's an inappropriate thing for the Prime Minister to say. However, I've been guilty of saying similar things in the past only because when I was at school, I was not taught about our slavery past. And obviously, since then, I've done some, you know, reading and some research of my own, and I understand a lot better that, the, you know, that and, and I feel... I feel stupid that it took me so long to understand. But the truth of it is that I grew up in a place where everybody was conspiring for me never to know that information. Yeah. <laughs> and, Will, I found out this week, um, uh, I, I shared uh, jokingly um, uh, a parody account of the Prime Minister saying, uh, what I meant to say is we didn't have African-American slavery here in Australia. And so I shared that jokingly going, that's funny. Let's put that up. And uh, I responded saying, no, we just had um, 
um, uh, the indentured slavery of uh, both Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, Pacific Islander, uh, Chinese um, uh, convicts, 12% which were um, Irish resisting British imperialism in Ireland and then found themselves in Australia. Um, slavery. And that, that was their thing. Then somebody contacted me, Will, and said, actually, we did have African-American slavery here. And I'm like, what? A link to an ABC program about how African slaves freed in America, emancipated in America, found themselves um, caught up and taken to Australia as convicts. So there were some African-American slaves in Australia. So we've all got learning to do. Like there's, there's all, uh, all of us are on that journey and um, uh, we've got to keep ourselves from being too smug. But um, so that's the personal work that some people would want to talk about. But let's talk about some of the structural work. It is also true that the government that our prime minister represents um, uh, had waged a war against history in our school systems and referred to it as black arm band history. And John Howard um, deliberately um, made sure that this stuff wasn't taught. And we're only now finding out that it wasn't black armband. It, it was like white blindfold history and that these stories actually need to be told because there is no way we can step into a future that doesn't look like that past if we don't, um, and, and excuse me stepping into my Christianese, uh, if we don't repent of that kind of ridiculousness. Like if, if we don't actually repent of not telling the stories, let alone the stories of what have happened themselves, um, I've listened to countless friends tell the stories of their grandparents this past week um, and what they experience of slavery, uh, where um, their grandparents worked um, for bags of flour and sugar, and that was their r reality here in Western Australia. And uh, those stories, if they're not heard, then when we look at the prison population, we'll do these, um, uh, like, uh, you know, th this kind of privatised moralising where we'll judge others instead of, like, actually see the system for what it is and help it unmask. And that's what's happening in this moment. There is an unmasking that this um, death of George Floyd has actually caused for Australians, where we're going, oh, white supremacy isn't just something that exists in that geographic location just south of Canada and north of Mexico. It's a reality here. It's baked into the very way this country was created. White, supremacy, uh, white Australia policy was just one expression um, as policy of what we actually still move through on a daily basis here in Australia. You've had, uh, you know, plenty of encounters with the police. And I ask this you know, question without prejudice because it's very um, difficult to know what the reality is when I think that, you know, so for example, uh, I think that it's very clear that we have as massive a problem, you know, with reconciling our Indigenous history and how that we go forward and, you know, how that we take everybody forward that, you know, that America has. I, I honestly believe we have. It's a different percentage of the population, but the problem is equally as deep. And, you know, in some ways, they at least talk about this, you know. I mean, look, it's, you know, often in terribly disastrous ways, but I feel like it's much more of a public conversation because there are more black leaders, there are more black celebrities, there are more black thinkers who, you know, have that opportunity, who have that voice. You know, it is much less so in Australia, A, in terms of the population and B, in terms of the fact that those voices have been shut out of the mainstream system so effectively over the years that we haven't got to hear them. Uh, so that I get. When it comes to the police... 
what's your attitude? Because I've seen the police in America and they can be super scary. Uh, I have not had a lot of experience with the police other than one particularly fateful flight to Wagga Wagga. Uh, uh, you yeah, know. That, that is a great show. <laughs> For people who haven't seen that comedy special of Wills, my goodness, that's phenomenal. But there's a line in that show where I talk about the first message that I got when I got arrested because I was treated quite well by the police and the, the routine that I talk about in it was how scary that process was even for me, how scary and confusing being arrested is, even for, you know, a white, rich, middle class man who, you know, has a public voice who was always going to be treated the best that anyone could possibly be treated in those circumstances. And it was still overwhelming and terrifying and confusing. And, you know, I the routine really is about the idea of, you know, if, if I felt like that, you know, how do you judge these other people who don't have all those advantages when they are, you know, confused and yeah, don't understand what's going on in those situations. But there was a line in it and there's a whole routine in it. And I won't yeah, go into it, but about the first message I got was from Briggs and, you know, you know, he goes, you'll be fine. You know, we know how hard it is for a white man in custody. And I end up, it becomes a routine about the difference between, you know, the white experience in that situation versus what it would have been for Briggs if it had, had have been Briggs or if it had have been, you know, an anonymous Indigenous person who, you know, didn't have the profile of somebody like Briggs. And it was always the moment that would still take the air out of the room. In 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 essentially what is a pretty fun show, mostly at my expense, that was the thing that still made us feel incredibly uh, uncomfortable as an audience, which was that we, that the police might have a different approach to me being a white man and somebody else who wasn't a white man. It felt confronting to audiences still. Is that your experience of what happens in Australia? You have you have more, you know, frontline experience of this. What has been your experience with the Australian police force? Where do they fit in to the overall governing of our country and the way our society is formed? Well, I don't think I've ever been in lockup and not seen an Aboriginal person there. Um, I mean, and that in itself, I think, tells us a whole heap. So much of where we are determines what we see. Um and it's it's those experiences that have helped me see differently. When we were strip searched as part of the Love Makes Away um, police response, uh, there was a crime and corruption commission that went into what happened to us. Um, the West Australian police spent over a million dollars getting a scanner that you get at the airport and putting it in um, that station. So what happened to us wouldn't happen again. And yet the reality is for um, Noongar or Yamaji or other Aboriginal people in Borloo or, or Perth, that happens all the time. But because we were middle-class, uh, because we were educated, um, because we were religious leaders and because mainly because we were white, there was such a fuss around all of that. And they're the realities we're talking about. And the conversation usually goes one or two ways again, because we can't hold two things together. We need to humanize um, individual police officers while unequivocally naming the dehumanizing nature of our policing system. Both those things can be said at the same time. And that's, I think one of the most effective ways to say that, um, uh, it isn't with Rage Against the Machine lyrics, but is with uh, defund the police and what defunding the police actually means. And 
um, the, the historic peace church traditions which um, have formed me, uh, one of the things that they've always said is that there's two kinds of powers, um, uh, one that is transformative and um, uh, one that is destructive. And it's clear which of those two powers our current police force works on. Policing can only um, express itself in a way that um, limits bad things. It, it can't currently be part of creating good things. Um, when we have armed police officers in every situation in Australia and where our police are taught um, in their training to shoot, to kill, is it, does it surprise any of us that this is how it expresses itself when somebody actually pulls a gun? If we invest more in um, uh, conflict de-escalation, it's not that the police don't have something, but it's like that's one unit you had on a Tuesday afternoon when a specialist came in versus how much time was spent on the firing range. And what we train in, any of us, in any area of life, will determine what we're good at. What we invest time in will determine who we become. And if we constantly um, uh, allow policing to um, uh, receive more militarised uh, uh, weapons, um, uh, more riot training, and not ask questions about, well, what would it look like? Um, my mate Samuel Sapira, who's an amazing um, Peace Award-winning um, Nigerian organiser, uh, he has done this incredible work in the um, outer suburbs of Chicago. He now lives in America um, and, and lectures there where he started a program where people would, um, police officers would move into the neighbourhoods where they're policing and part of their time uh, that they would spend that would be recorded um, would be like time in the community in a capacity where they're not actually policing as, as we've known it. The drop in violence that they found and the drop in likelihood of a police officer actually pulling out their weapon was directly resulted to how much contact they had with people in the community. We're a long way away from that um, idea of policing where um, the bobby would merely have a baton and know everybody in the village. Um, part of the colonial Australian experience in itself is that uh, policing became something different. And we, yes, we have diversity training in terms of um, understanding racism in our police forces, but diversity training, we don't need more diverse people um, committing the kind of acts which we're only learning about now that results in deaths in custody. We actually need to address white supremacy and defunding the police isn't about um, police no longer getting paid. It's no longer getting paid to do the kind of things that police should not be doing. There should be special units that can respond to those situations, but that shouldn't be what general policing is all about. Um, uh, the, the police being weaponized against the general public instead of serving and protecting is part of the problem. And if we can have these new conversations at this moment and not react to like defund the police, what a stupid idea. We're just going to have anarchy on the streets. No, no, what we're talking about is police actually being involved in building community um, uh, where it is serving and protecting uh, rather than these weaponized response where what we train in constantly is um, that we are the enemy and, and the police are, are going in um, uh, as an army to fight us. That's part of the problem. Is it more extreme in America because of their gun laws? You bet. No question, Will. But um, we have so much work to do right now and Black Lives Matter movement worldwide is actually creating these conversations where we can uh, talk about what it is to reimagine our police forces. Okay, so what... What challenges have there been for you personally during, I mean, obviously, new baby, 
um, you know, a global pandemic. Um, I imagine a whole bunch of people perhaps even needing extra support and extra guidance, you know, people that you would, you know, support and talk to and look at, look out for, you know, probably a time where there's been a gr- greater need for you uh, to be in their lives as well. How has this time, because, I'm, you know, I'm sure that I, I, I never imagined that you wouldn't be out there on the streets, you know, for the protests. I never imagined that there wouldn't be one person who during this you know, global time needed you that you didn't take time for. But at the same time, you've also got, you know, a brand new baby in a completely unusual circumstance for the world. How has this all been for you personally? Yeah, and, and Will, um, uh, part of being in, involved in this work, uh, I, I don't want the people to have the impression that um, it's a dependency model where... Um, I need to be needed and so set myself up in such ways. Um, am I aware of those kind of uh, dynamics uh, that they can emerge? Um, you bet. I, I see a good psychologist and um, try and stay on top of that kind of stuff. Um, but it's also what community creates is um, what we all need. So instead of dependency models, we can be in this together. Um, so actually being involved in this work uh, gives us you know, if people actually do start a reading group with their friends, they will have new people. If you're going that deep exploring like racism and um, uh, what that means for people's own personal stories and trying to be involved in this moment and, and this work, you will have people that you can call on when um, things go sideways, uh, when you do lose your job, when, um, uh, you know, a a loved one dies or all that kind of stuff that we all need. Um, part of what community provides is a safe place to be human. Oh, the, the conversation about um, policing, we're talking about a more humane way of being together. Um, if, if we can um, be human together, like keep it as aspirational as I want to be decent and humane and compassionate. I, I want to learn what it is to be a good human, not in some um outstanding way but in being in community together way that's the work for for all of us um so one of the amazing things of like um having a baby or getting a new dog or um uh if if you uh get a new flat or whatever else is that your friends want to come around being able to do that in this moment has been difficult um but friends who you know visited in detention center who now have their own freedom and um, sending uh, amazing gifts or my friend Adam last time, uh, if people remember me, uh, on the po- your podcast last time, we talked about the story of uh, Manus. Um, Adam got to FaceTime with my baby. He's been relocated after seven years, um, to the U S and, uh, and he's in New York state and him getting to see my baby. I mean, he cried. I cried. It was such a weird moment. We didn't know why we were crying. Uh, but there's something about new life and just the protest that is life <laughs> in the midst of like all this death dealing and like all the rest that was so beautiful. He's got his freedom. There's this little baby in the world and sharing in that together um, being whether it's grief or it's gratitude, they're moments that connect us to one another. And it's the connection itself, which is life um, uh and, and that's what we've got to try and foster uh, w- ways that um, 
we come out of the isolation and be involved in such ways that we can, you know, social media at its best helps people um, connect in such ways that they find their humanity. And at its worst, we use it to lose it. So at its best and at its worst is an interesting concept because there are so many things that are great at their best and terrible at their worst. And yet often we just try to decide if something is good or bad. I often find we say this thing is good, this thing is bad, whereas what we really should be saying is at its best, this thing is great, at its worst, this thing is terrible, at its worst, this thing is terrible, but let's look at what it could be at its best. On on a very, it will seem like a weird U-turn, well, no, side turn, I don't know, turn, a turn of some kind. I'm stepping away just a little bit just to make a point, which is about I was watching football on the television last night and there was a limited amount of uh, crowds, uh, in the in the, in some of the games over the weekend, and there was some that had no crowds at all. That was basically what is happening at the moment. And I think that uh, we had got to a point with professional sport where the stars of the sports felt like they were the you know the emperors of the universe, the masters of the universe, and that the crowds were just there to watch them do what it is that they do, rather than it actually being a conversation between those two people a conversation between the athletes and the audience and that the audience themselves are a very important part of that conversation but also I think as an audience as crowds we had perhaps lost sight of the fact that we were watching people play a game and the game was only important but because we decided that we liked the game and we thought the game was important and so both of those things the player's appreciation for the the, the, the game is only a game you know, if uh, if nobody else is watching, that the audience is important to the process, not separate from, but important to the process. But also from the point of view of the audience, that perhaps we can remember that this thing that we take seriously is only a game and we only take it seriously because we choose to take it seriously. Yeah. Uh, my cousin Chris Perucci is rejoicing because um, I, I text him and I said, I think I'm a Dockers supporter now. Um, the, 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 the moment when um, uh, the Dockers actually took a knee and you watch the Dockers Football Club uh, respond to fans saying, I'm withdrawing my membership and them um, in the best public relations uh, uh, niceties responding with, um, uh, sad to see you, you go, uh, we'll put you through to the people who can organise you to like um, cancel your membership and just being fine with it, like just being like, yep, that's, that's how we're going to deal with it. That was that was incredible, um, and also uh, starting to hear from our players like the whole um, what Adam Goods has kind of been put through as a pioneer in this space, um, and being able to hear from like Bradley Hill at the moment talk about um, this is not black versus white, this is everybody versus racism, like and it's been heard and received in a in a different way. Um, sports like I- I- any part of our life. Um, uh, a, a passive consumption, which makes us uncritical. Like, uh, like I like Chomsky, but when he talks about um, sport as a training for fascism, I was like, no, is this about you just like not being like athletic as a kid? Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> right. like, you just don't <laughs> like sports, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you sports ball online. I get it. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because for so many of us, like it, it's it's so important. Um, it's it's kind of the glue that holds so many conversations together in Australia, um, that v- very um, broken way that Australian men 
have related to one another. Sport is one of the few areas where there might be some sense of um, something registering on an emotional Richter scale for the average Australian male who often can't feel like they can express it anywhere else. I remember Tim Costello telling me when I um, uh, first, um, Tim mentored uh, me for a good while and he was saying I was living in a, a very poor um, neighbourhood in my city, and one of the advice that Tim had to, uh, for me is um, follow a sporting team and um, work out what game people are playing in the area and uh, follow it because it's an incredible way to to connect. I wonder if um, what's happening at the moment. Um, I don't know if you watched the Last Dance at all, Will. Oh, of course I did. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I, I I loved every minute of it, and and the fact that, yeah, I'll tell you how good it was. Amy watched every minute of it. Amy's watched about fifteen minutes of AFL football in the twenty years we've known each other, but I managed to get her to watch about ten hours of a documentary about the Chicago Bulls. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Yeah, I, like Jordan, what what like if like he's truly the goat, like uh, unbelievably, um, but he's he's so broken like the rest of us, just like every one of us, and. Uh, he managed to um, throw his brokenness in a direction that um, he could achieve greatness in uh, his profession. And, you know, that's what we hope for all of us. Um, but, you know, the, the reality of him, uh, Republicans buy shoes too. I think that era of sporting is coming to an end. Um, uh, you know, with Dave Pocox here in Australia, um, the Muhammad Ali's um, in the US, those who have said, no, no, no um, this is a short window of my life that I might, my body might be good for, for 10 years, 15 years tops. And uh, then there's just being a human. And there's that strange thing that um, it's possible to be extremely exceptional in our chosen vocation and really horrible at being human. But I do think if we spend the time to be human, it might not make us better in our, our, our chosen occupation. Um, but it will make us a better human. <laughs> like, mm. Worst that case scenario, uh, we become more compassionate, more humble, more grounded, more decent, more connected. And uh, hopefully that also makes us better our profession. Uh, will, it's, it's why so many people love your stuff uh, because there is a way to kind of short circuit where you don't do the transformation work and you just read the cheat notes in the back of the book and you go, here's the answer to progressive A, B, C, and D. I haven't done the work myself, but it lands on people differently. People feel it in terms of like judgment or it's like a um, all of us versus them and, it, and it's cheap. Um, what you do in so many of your shows and, and particularly the one we were just talking about in terms of your experience of being arrested, you took people on a journey where um, you humanized yourself and it wasn't about how great is Will or how horrible is Will. We got to pull back our own projections upon you um, and instead consider ourselves through your story and the story of like the reality of those things in Australia and reconsider um, what happens for so many so often. I mean, that that's art at its best. And it's the same with sport. That's sport at its best. It, it becomes um, a forum in which we can play out uh, what it is to be human. It, it's the significance of what Nelson Mandela did with the Springbok, that it, it became a place of uh, connection that so easily could have been weaponized against, and instead it brought people together. And the AFL is one of those places um, uh, where we are seeing 
just how incredible um, these young people that often end up in our prisons really are. And what if these opportunities that there are available in football for a variety of historical reasons were available right across the spectrum of different opportunities in society? I think what that's why I was so disappointed with, uh, you know, football's reaction to Adam Goods because it was because I love the game, you know, of Australian rules football. I grew up with it. You know, it's been my great passion as a sport. But one of the things I was always quite proud of, and I understand that this comes with some complexity. We can talk about the idea that one of the only ways out of poverty for, you know, Indigenous people, Black American athletes is through, you know, sports and arts and entertainment and not other structures in our society. But it was also something to be quite proud of. You know, you, you talk about a disproportionate percentage of the population. Well, you ha- have to look no further than the fields of the Australian Rules Football League to understand that there are a disproportionate amount of Indigenous players playing compared to the percentage of the population. And in a positive way, given opportunities to earn hundreds of thousands of dollars to set up their lives, to have secure careers. But the minute one of those people wanted to have a voice and actually talk, not just play the company game and be grateful for what they have, but actually use that voice and that opportunity to look out for others, he was shut down so completely unfairly one of the greatest champions in the history of our game was really almost completely run out of the game by not only the complicity of the league but also the media and the fans around the league and the ongoing ramifications of that which we're only now seeing as your chad wingards or your bradley hills and these sort of people have the opportunity to say i felt silenced by that i i looked at what happened to adam goods And the message I was being sent by my employers and the message I was sent by the community and the media around what it is I was do was just play your footy and shut up and don't talk about those things. Yeah, well, um, Drew Hart, who is the co-host with myself of the Inverse podcast, how's that for a nice subtle plug? Um, Drew, in his book, Trouble I've Seen, he talks about the difference between uh, horizontal racism and vertical racism. And I think Australian rules football is a perfect example of where people only think about racism on the vertical as in, Oh, I don't, I don't use those words. Like I, I don't make those jokes. Um, I don't have, I'm not harboring personal prejudices in my own heart. Um, I, I don't feel hatred towards. And so they're like, so I'm not racist. And it's like, well, actually, this conversation isn't about you. So let's first change the conversation from either my innocence or my guilt, because this is actually about other people and their suffering. <laughs> That's step one for white people. The whole conversation isn't about us. It's actually about the suffering of others. I mean, to be honest, you should have brought that up at the start of the podcast, because that is that is the biggest like that is absolutely true. I know that that sounds dumb that I'm even saying that to you, but of course, it's the first thing that white people ever do in this situation is put up their own defenses, and not just white people. I think perhaps it's a natural human, you know, reaction. But you see it expressed a lot, which is like, well, I'm not like this, and I'm not sure anyone was actually saying that you were. We're saying that the system and society is. Well, uh, having a conversation, and I've actually. Um... Uh, uh, with the stress of some of the stuff that's happened this past week in terms of um, uh, organising stuff, I found myself awake at 3am in the morning and I'm like, what am I going to do? And I ended up um, uh, writing a a kid's story for my boy. And in fact, if you would indulge me, because it's only like 15 sentences, I'd be happy to to share it uh, with you. Um, 
if we don't understand our own stories, and that's why I wrote this little story for Noah about his great grandmother who met him last week. She's 90 years old, um, uh, grew up in the Netherlands, in, in Holland, remembers the Nazis coming in. And Will, we were uh, uh, over at her house and she's holding her um, great grandson for the first time. And she's reflecting on seeing uh, these militarized police on the streets of America and how it reminded her of when the Nazis invaded which I just, I just found that like a stunning kind of reflection. But part of the reason why white fragility is so fragile is because white people have traded in their identities for being white. We forgot who we were before we were white. How the Irish became white, how the Polish became white, uh, how, how Russians became white, uh, how Norwegians became, like all of us have traded in as stories of our ancestors, our particular songs, our dances, our stories. And uh, we've traded all of that in for this um, uh, colonial enterprise, which um, uh, came stealing, killing and destroying, taking other people's lands, destroying cultures. And if we're not aware of that, we can't ever hear any of uh, what's going on and not respond defensively because otherwise white people will think at the end of the day, my identity is being white. Whiteness isn't who you are. Whiteness is what you traded your ancestors in for becoming so you can benefit from the oppression of others. And if we can't start to remember that, oh no, part, part of the story of slavery in Australia, even though my McKenna's were, arrived in 1972 from Ireland, um, uh, the Irish, their early experience in Australia before they became white was at co as convicts, 12% of, of the convicts. And most of them were in like resisting British imperialism in their lands to which they're indigenous to and found themselves in Australia and then took advantage of the fact that they could trade all that in to actually um, uh, benefit off the oppression of people who are indigenous to this land. And th they're some of the complexities of the story. So I'm um, talking with my boys during the week and writing this story, being able to say, uh, we never need, need to feel defensive because um, whiteness is just a way of talking about a, a very recent story that justifies land theft and cultural genocide. And that's not who we are. That's not who our ancestors are. Um, uh, we need to own that in such ways where we realize um, that we can um, trade in who we really are to benefit from the oppression of others, or we can choose not to. And, and that's who our family is. That, that's the work that we must do. That's who we're going to be uh, as a family um, is that. And that's why it's so important. We're at the protest. And that's why like my boys choosing to wear their L fresh power to the peaceful t-shirts and wear face masks. So they look like Antifa, um, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun, uh, dress ups and, um, uh, going to see people and learn new chants and then go to tell their friends at school, um, why they weren't at school that we got to go to a protest because black lives matter always was always will be Aboriginal. Like uh, the joy for me of, um, hearing my kids in other rooms around the house, just like start chants always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And I'm like, this is parenting, Will. This is parenting. Like it's it's a yeah. it's a beautiful you, thing. You know one of your kids is going to rebel at an age 14 or 15 and join the young liberals. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> go, go to the atheist convention and uh, join the young liberals. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so are you going to read me uh, the book? Oh, may I? 
Yeah, so let's when we finish, let's finish with that. So can we save that? Because we've got to finish up in a minute anyway, and I think that would be a really nice way to finish. But I want to ask you a couple of other quick questions just before we finish up. And now that I know that you have a microphone, I'm going to bother you more often to catch up and have a conversation. You know that I refuse to have conversations with my friends unless they're recorded, Jared. So. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I want to ask you about the role of your faith, you know, uh, has it, has it been even more important or is it just as important as it has always been at the moment? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes people ask that thinking that, um, if I'm feeling good, faith must be important. Or, um, if things are really bad, that faith must be important, um, uh, uh part, part of those those ancient how does bono describe them um uh the, the ancient hebrew hebrew greatest hits like the the psalms and the role that they play in my life like um two-thirds of the psalms are lament psalms so it means that you, you're just listening to sad music it's like having radio head on two-thirds of the time right but what what that does what what that actually um schools you in is that every human emotion um, is part of the journey. Um, uh, the rage, even the paranoia, the anger, the sadness, the, the, the grief, the melancholy and the joy and the good, like all of that is, is part of it. And, um, uh, faith for me is not something that kind of boosts me up or, um, it's, it's a story that I'm learning to swim in instead of swimming in different stories. Now I'm fully aware there's ways to tell the Christian story, um, that, uh, literally play chaplain to the colonial projects of white supremacy. But what is it to be schooled in a, in a different story? Um, uh, that of a faith, which has always resisted, um, that, that way of telling the story. Uh, so I can find myself in need of grace and be honest about that. I think one of the gifts, um, that faith, um, actually gives is that, it starts with admitting that I'm complicit. I can't play the more woke than thou games. Um, I've got permission to look at all the stuff that shows up in my dreams that I'd otherwise um, sublimate and not want to look at and go, yeah, that's me. And I, I need grace. Uh, I need the kind of kindness that I hope from others um, to show to myself. And what is it to experience that from uh, you know, um, walks in the bush and, um, uh, time in the surf and, uh, realize that there, there is an unfailing love uh, that never gives up, uh, that, that never taps out in its being for us. And, and that me, I'm a part of us, that, that there, um, there is a kindness that doesn't withdraw itself from my life, not despite all the bad stuff, but particularly in the stuff that I hope other people don't find out that I, 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 I'm like, Oh my goodness, I don't want to look at this stuff. But any of us have been in long-term relationships with a loved one know that it's, it's real love when they see all our messiness, they see all us at our worst and they love and stick with us anyway, because they trust that we can change. Um, and so that's, that's the role it plays for me. Um, uh, I would be lying if I was to say, yeah, every time I enter into the silence of prayer that I feel like 
you know, this incredible intimacy and um, uh, I see visions and no, I don't. Um, sometimes I'm just like, well, that was 20 minutes and I just thought about what I'm cooking tonight and the fact that I need to put that toe cream on my foot fungi. Like, you know, that's... <laughs> that's <laughs> um, but, but being schooled in that different story uh, where we remember uh, who we are below the labels that people put on us or have been put on us or systems put on us or we put on ourselves um, that there's nothing I can do to make God love me more. There's nothing I can do to make God love me less that I, I'm actually loved um, despite all of that and maybe even liked. That's the space that I have to keep coming back to. Then I can be kind to others because I know I need it. <laughs> So talking to you on a Sunday morning almost feels like going to church for me. This is as close to going to church as it's happened for me in about 20 years. Um, I, I have loved this as always. It's always brilliant to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much for giving me your time. I know that you're incredibly busy and uh, um, uh, I just you know appreciate that you took some time out to have a chat to me. Always brilliant. Uh, let's finish because I think it would be a nice way to finish. Read, read, read me your book. Yeah, sure. Um, so this can be the first uh, communal book club that we're being involved in, guys. It's actually a practical step. So everybody must find a, a friend and um, uh, discuss this. What your favorite verse was, what it meant to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I called the story Little Orma's Duty or why Orma has a soft spot for Antifa. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time, your great Orma was a little girl, a little Orma. Little Orma loved many things, sunshine on her cheeks, birds in the air, running in the field with her big brothers, laughing with her friends. But it wasn't all fun and games. Little Orma had duties. Little Orma swept the floors. Little Orma would pick turnips. Little Orma would help pack away the plates. But little Orma had a very special duty every day Little Orma had to do one most important chore. Little Orma, only 10 years old, had to lay out the mat and place all the shoes upon it. This was a very special job because under the shoes, under the mat, under the floorboards, Little Orma had special friends. These friends were not kabunta or, nor elves nor fairies, nor were they scary like monsters or dragons. They were wonderful children, just like you. The only difference was that they were Jewish, just like your old grandpa on my side of the family. But this story does have a monster, more scary than a dragon. This monster adults call by a strange name, fascism. And friends of fascism wanted to kill Alma's little friends because they had a different religion and they spoke a different way and they often looked a bit different. So little Orma would sweep the floors so the fascists couldn't see her friend's footsteps. Little Orma, just 10 years old, would risk being shot by picking turnips at night so the fascists wouldn't know her parents were feeding her friends. Little Orma would help put away the dishes so if the fascists raid the house, there would be no sign of her friends. And little Orma would do her most important duty. She would love her neighbors by hiding them under the shoes, under the mat, under the floorboards, so the fascists wouldn't win. 
If you were to ask Alma about this, she would laugh at talk of being heroic or selfless or brave. She would just tell you, I was doing my duty. And that's why Alma has a soft spot for Antifa, because our family is proudly anti-fascist. So we will do our duty and love our neighbours too. Thank you. Love you, bro. Love you too. Lovely to see you. Love to your family. And um, let's talk again soon. Take care.